Welcome back, folks, again to one more edition of Virtual Cisco Happy Hour. My name is Rick Vibe. I am your host today. I am joined with Kane McGladry, who is a first-timer uh, panelist on our on our show. I will allow him to introduce himself in a second. And we have Chris Hamlin back one more time. Thank you, Chris. I really appreciate you stepping in here. Um, today's topic, before we get into introductions for everyone listening, is privacy, right? How do we guard our privacy? How do we guard our corporate policy privacy, our personal privacy? We're going to talk a little in-depth on this subject today. This is the last week of the Cybersecurity Awareness Month, so that's why this topic came up. Um, anyhow, so my name is Rick Live. I'm the Chief Information Security Officer for Access Point. I uh, run our virtual CISO, our virtual CISO practice as well. So I've got 35 years in the business, CISSP, all that good fun stuff. So I am going to let Kane at this point um, introduce himself. Kane, go ahead and uh, let's talk to you who you are and a little bit about you and all that good fun stuff. Fantastic. And thanks for having me on the show today, Rick. Really appreciate the opportunity. Uh, so as indicated, my name is Kane. I am the field CISO at Hyperproof. I am a senior member of the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers, otherwise known as the IEEE. I'm actually one of their spokespersons on the subject of cybersecurity. I've been doing this for uh, over 25 years. I like to say that because it might make me sound younger. I'm not sure the amount of gray hair you get from being a CISO. Uh, this is my second time I have been a CISO as well. The first time was at a defense industrial-based company where um, <clears throat> if I'd never hear the term ITAR again or FAR regulation or 7012, I would be a happier person not having to deal with that in my professional life. And uh, like you, I've got the CISSP and all the other you know, usual stuff. Uh, and I'm based out of Bellingham, Washington, the city of subdued excitement up in the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> no Bellingham well myself. Chris, why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah, Chris Hamlin. I'm an IT director for a large international or organization with a uh, prior history of uh, IT consulting, specializing in uh, in uh, GRC, you know, governance risk uh, compliance, uh, specifically around the uh, ISO and uh, business continuity uh, planning uh, space. You know, your uh, BCPs, BIAs, DRAs, and all those other uh, fun acronyms. So there you go. Awesome. Alphabet soup day today, man. Yes. That's awesome. <laughs> awesome. So I'm going to kick this off real quick. So, Kane, with your background, I'm going to ask a few questions. I'm going to ask you to respond. Uh, Chris, feel, feel free to jump in and respond after Kane if you need to. Um, I'm going to try to make this as open as I can, open flowing. So please, everybody, jump in whatever you want. We will get questions from our live audience, potentially. So as we get those in, I will see those on my screen, and then I will ask those questions. So um, real quick, folks, uh, I'm going to kick this off with Kane and say, Kane, how, our, our privacy is critical. Our organization and our personal lives, in my opinion. And I've got really strong opinions about privacy being in this business for so long. And I personally feel like we have failed our younger generation uh, because they don't think their, their data is worth anything. However, it's valuable. So let's talk about company privacy before we get into personal privacy. So what, what are some of the core principles, Kane, that you believe that we should be following to protect our, our customer and employee data? What are some of those core principles? Well, I, I agree with you on uh, there's probably a larger conversation to have about younger generations and their attitudes towards privacy. But from a corporate governance perspective, um, I really think there's a, a series of steps that companies can take to really determine where they are on that privacy spectrum. And the first thing that they really should do as a core principle is establish a process for a regular data inventory, but also a minimization effort that they have so that they're really only keeping um, business critical information rather than extraneous information or um, you know, extra collection. And I say that because ultimately threat actors can't steal what you don't have. And so if it is not a requirement to have those data, um, why bother keeping them? But also that leads to like a focused data collection where we really want to limit our data that we're collecting to what we need for, for business operations or maybe a specific purpose like, uh, like marketing. And then, once we've established, like, here's the sphere of what we need to operate as a business, ensuring that we've got robust security around safeguarding that stored information and really restricting information to those sensitive data to people who only need it for a legitimate business activity. And that uh, I'm sure later in the talk, we could talk about ideas like encryption or multi-factor authentication as a security control. And then finally, I think all companies really have to be as transparent as possible, sometimes as transparent as legal will allow us to be around how we're handling our data and what we're doing with that, uh, but also making sure that uh, our governance process includes employee training 
on an ongoing basis. So people understand like this is your obligation as an employee to maintain your customers or your suppliers privacy. Awesome. Awesome. So can you give some real world examples uh, of how you've implemented or invalidated some of these controls? So or some of these principles, because validation to me is critical, right? You, you, we can talk about it all we want. We can put it in a policy, but if we can't validate it, it's worthless, right? And how many times have you seen over your career, Kane? And I, I've seen many times where we say one thing or a company will say one thing and we actually do another, right? Or we don't do something. So could you give some real world examples about how you've implemented some of these uh, principles and how, how you ensured and validated these principles are in play in an organization? You know, I used to do executive advisory work before I came to Hyperproof. And one of those considerations was really on the um, uh, sensitive data that companies have. And um, the story I'm thinking of was a construction firm. And a construction firm is not exactly a heavily regulated industry. And they've like, you know, they had the viewpoint in the world that they didn't have a lot of information that they needed to worry about. And unfortunately, they were a multinational global corporation, 36 countries, I think. And most of their business was done via M&A at this point for actual business growth. And one of the underpinning problems that we encountered there, other than the idea that um, they don't have anything sensitive because they had all this employee data in um, not just like the HR system, but uh, it was spread throughout the corporation in places that you might not have expected when we did a data analysis. The other thing that they were running into were data residency laws and the idea that the data actually has to live in a specific place, like under uh, Brazil's LGBD, LGBD, LGBD? Anyway, Brazil, Um, been a minute since I've looked at that one. I know, remember that starts now, but also under GDPR. And this was just as Schrems 2 had been litigated before we had the new DPAs. And what the challenge that they had was they decided, well, we're going to consolidate all of our data into North America, into Azure data centers in the United States which on paper from a financial perspective sounds great. And they can say, yeah, we've got an employee commitment to privacy and we've got uh, a commitment to doing privacy for our customers and for our vendors. But then you look at what Schrems 2 said, which is there are really no compensating controls like like a standard contractual control might work, but might not. And knowing that Schrems 3 was around the corner, um, still is around the corner, actually. I don't think that's gone to the... um, Central European Court of Justice yet. Um, the decision was, well, it's great that we've consolidated all of our data, but now we actually have to move it out to the endpoints because we can't just say we're going to have it and, and you know, not, initially not even treat it as sensitive. But once we've got them to recognize you need to treat these data as sensitive and have like controls around it, having to geolocate it for non-technical reasons, I think was the hardest part of that conversation to understand like there is a, a, a reason to do this from a legal perspective, not from a business operations perspective, but really to shield against potential future litigation. That's the same thing with China. Is that, uh, I forget there's CIPD law, I think it is. All data generated in China must stay in China, that type uh-huh. of thing. You're in GDPR. I've, I've done one, one, so I'm not an expert. One GDPR installation took me two and a half years to get it done. And still, we had to make a lot of changes after it was done. So uh, <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of lot, lot of legitimacy to what you're saying about the business piece, where you've got to keep the data where it belongs, you know, where it's generated, depending on the laws, depending on the country that's going to uh, hit the data in the United States is one one example. It's not a law; you got to keep it here. But from a business perspective, you can't enforce HIPAA or high tech outside the borders of the United States. Therefore, your medical data must be maintained within the continental 48 in U.S. or in Hawaii or Alaska individually. It's difficult. I understand that. I agree. Chris, have you seen how you are a GRC expert, in my opinion? You've done this forever. How what what principles that Kane has not touched on would you like to impart to our audience on privacy on, on things we should could be considering in our enterprise? So, um, Kane, I would love to hear um, from your perspective, from the implementation uh, specifically, um, as you see organizations, you know, developing internal uh, software. Um, how do you make sure that uh, both the the software is successfully uh, implemented and tested in, in uh, dev test and, and production environments and separating those environments with potentially uh, live or opt- obfuscated uh, data in the dev and uh, test environments while keeping those environments uh, secure as well? Because I've, I've seen far too many times of, of organizations, hey, you know, they've got this great, great data in their, their production environment, but testing it in their dev, dev and test environment with a, a small subset of that, but it not be properly obfuscated or, or, or somewhat. I, what, what, have, what have you guys kind of seen 
is the best practices for implementing implementing that or generating so, you know false data. Yeah, I think that starts really with developer training more than anything else, and making them understand you're not supposed to put your production data into. And people will understand that in theory, but then you get into the actual implementation of it. And having that training as a regular job function so that they're aware of it, that's part of it. A secondary part of that is I've seen implementations of data loss protections, the DLP software, that actually can detect like, this is production data that has crossed the boundary through some means that was unexpected or unanticipated. And that's in addition to any technical controls that exist, especially around roles and rights and, and what's in production versus what's in dev. Um, obviously, DevOps companies have got a slightly different approach towards that, but it's the same underpinning of we can't have the developers getting access to production. There has to be a code promotion, and it's a one-way door. It's not a two-way door where the data can come back from production into the development or the DevOps environment. And then finally, I think the other thing that companies really need to lean in on is um, compliance operations of continuously testing our controls and validating that our controls are working. I think a lot of companies will get ready for the privacy audit or the security audit or the attestation or the certification, whichever they're going for, and it becomes the Super Bowl, and everybody panics for about four weeks while the auditors are on site or preparing to do the audit, and then we all drop our controls, or we don't inspect our controls, or we stop evaluating if they are operating effectively. And I think that in today's world where companies are getting audited or certified multiple times a year, if not multiple times a month, I think that really leaning into how much of this data collection of control operation can we automate and how much of that can we test on an automated basis so that we actually understand as a CISO or as a chief compliance officer, our controls are actually operating as expected. We are maintaining the privacy that we say is in our policy, that these controls that we've designed are actually not being subverted and that they're being effective. And that really helps companies not only to achieve compliance objectives like an ISO certification, for example, or having a better SOC 2 report, but also it allows them to have that confidence when they talk to an insurance company, for example, to transfer some of their risk. They know their controls actually are operating, right? And they can have a, a data-informed conversation over, here's what we want to insure against rather than, well, we kind of sort of you don't really know how well our controls are operating. That's not a space that I think we can really live in at this point. No, I agree. I mean, the, the first thing that happens when you go get the cyber insurance and then you make a claim, the first thing they do is they walk in and say, okay, prove to me that you followed all of your uh, controls every single day that you've told us about. Because as part of going through that cyber insurance uh, proper, it's a cyber insurance uh, time frame to actually collect all the data and get your insurance policy. They ask you for all of your audits. They ask you for a lot of controls. They ask you for your policies. And then they ask you to prove that you follow them. So you've got, like Kane said, you know, you're in your panic mode four weeks, five weeks ahead of time. Okay, here you go. Here's proof. And then if you don't follow them every single day afterwards, the person the insurance comes to says, sorry, you didn't, hey, you didn't follow your own policies. And, and I've seen that actually happen. And it's unfortunate because people don't realize that. You know, they think, oh, this got an audit says, you know, a, a time, a date, you know, a timestamp, right? And so we're good here for the next year. And you really, you really need to prove this every single month to internally. You just have to, because otherwise you're in trouble. Plain and simple. But we also have to do that in a way that is not going to um, really encourage more dissent or unhappiness between the classic audit team and the classic security or privacy team. Because I think a lot of people who became audit professionals never thought their job would be to follow up with A about B and follow up with B about C, where they become project managers who are ultimately chasing people for evidence of control operation. And I don't think that people who got into a job for doing security or for doing privacy thought that they'd be spending their days sending Excel spreadsheets and sending screenshots or whatever yeah. other evidence of control operation. Like, that whole thing, computers can copy files, right? I think we've established that for a, a while now. And at some point, we, we decided that humans needed to be involved. And I think the human only needs to get involved to evaluate, like, is this evidence sufficient? But what if once the evidence is actually shown to be sufficient, the actual testing of like, hey, is it working? Like, let's say you've got a data encryption. We're talking about privacy. Let's say you have an encryption thing that says all of your data needs to be encrypted at rest, right? That means if somebody steals, whether it's a virtual disk file or a database, I don't care. If it's stolen, they're going to have trouble if you don't have key material, which you shouldn't store next to it. Um, I don't want to have a human go into an Excel file or an API call or a 
PDF goodness help us every day to look and see, hey, is this all, all encrypted? That's just a waste of time. And it, it's, it, it puts people into a checklist mentality, but it's also very degrading as a professional that that's your day job. Like you look in a file for a checkbox, automate the heck out of that. And really then people can focus on those larger questions. Like from a privacy perspective, are we actually having a, a culture of security and of privacy? Do we have an organizational level commitment? Those things that we cannot automate that actually require looking at how is the corporation behaving? How is the board behaving? How is our executive leader? leadership behaving. Are they actually, are, do we operate in a paper tiger here or are we actually doing what we say we'll do? And, and more importantly, are, are, does the board actually getting accurate information? Because a lot of times they're not getting the accurate information or they don't understand the information that, that they've been given. So part of that is to, to, to tag on that, Kane, is to make sure that the supervisors, the board of directors here, the C-levels can actually understand the data we're giving them. Because as, as engineers, a lot of systems like myself, we come up through the engineering path, right? So I speak geek. Well, boards don't care about geek. They don't want to speak geek. They want to speak money. They want to speak dollars. They want to speak reputation. They want to speak sales, right? That's what they want to speak. So being able to translate that data is critical in my opinion. And I don't think a lot of us do that effectively with the board of directors just yet. I think that there's a lot of people that do, but there's still a lot of people that don't and they don't realize that. And there's, there's a disparity there. And checking those controls and getting that information back to the board, I think is critical. Yeah, and the unfortunate thing that that's led to from those of us who've come from a technical background, um, and I, I fit that description, um, we have created this false narrative that there is such a thing in the world called cyber risk. And I would posit there is no thing as cyber risk. It's a fiction. There is business risk. risk. When you look right. at a result of a cyber event or a breach, we don't talk about, like some of us talk about the technical fiddly bits, the board, the executives, they don't care. Right. You look at like what happened to, I don't know, MGM or Caesars Palace recently down in Las Vegas. Um, people did not talk about, oh, let's talk about the technical fiddly bits of a, of a third party breach of like some identity provider. No, they talked about people who couldn't get into their hotel rooms. They talked about the, uh, you know, people who couldn't use the casinos, ATM machine. We talked about effects. We talked about monetary damages, $100 million in counting. Right. Those are the things that regulators focus on. Those are the things that boards focus on. And I'd say for any CISO watching this, like if you want to know how to effectively communicate your value to the business, find out what are their KPIs, their key performance indicators. What are they measuring executive performance on? And then tie everything you've got to a KRI, a key risk indicator, which is often a lagging indicator, but occasionally they're leading indicators that can then show like, hey, these things you care about. Here's how I am managing my sphere of risk associated with that, which you can take into the rest of your organizational telemetry as appropriate, right? As opposed to, oh, we got 100 million attacks this month. And they go, eh, what? Like, I think we've been presenting a lot of actual, like, factual data to them that they just don't care about. It's nobody needs those facts. I agree 100%. Chris, you jumped in. Yeah. Um, so as, as you were talking there, obviously you said a whole lot of th things, um, but there was a couple of, a couple of things that kind of, jumped out at me um one specific thing as you were talking about automation right um how what what type of best practices have uh, you seen organizations uh implement uh, as far as automation for uh data classification as we're talking about uh policies here for the data all the way to the endpoint we're talking about the actual uh, uh files and and determining whether or not those, those files uh, should be classified as uh, different types of secure data, whether it includes PI or PCI or, or, or those those type of data is in it, and making sure that hey, you know, someone you know uh, copying said file onto a USB drive uh, or emailing it to personal spaces and so, so on and so forth, uh, ensure that we're able to track and continue to secure that data when it leaves the premises of the originating organization. So I really think that. There's a lot to unpack here. So I think that at, at a very high level, um, first of all, let's talk about data classification. The minimum y'all should have is public, internal, and sensitive. And I say yep. that because people go like, what are the labels we should have? Okay, let's start with the basic three and then see if we need to get more specific. And, and public, that should hopefully be obvious. Like, it's on your website. Right. Yep. Or it's something that's available to everybody. Internal is going to be maybe your employee emails, stuff that's only available for employees, not for the general public. And then sensitive is going to be anything that could be, um, I don't know, PII, PHI. It's going to be confidential. It's going to be something that's harmful from a regulatory or litigatory perspective if it's exposed. And then for those, we really need to look at what are the controls we need to look at. So for public data, 
Um, I think that it's more around data integrity than confidentiality because if it's public data, it's you don't worry about the confidentiality, but you certainly worry about like how many uh, people's websites have we seen get absolutely wrecked back in the day where people, a threat actor would deface it, right? That's the type of data integrity problem that we're searching to prevent. Whereas for internal data, I think that really having controls that limit the access to it to uh, similar uh, specific departments or roles within a company, but also auditing that the people who have those access actually are using that access. Uh, and then finally, our sensitive data, that that regulated class of data or proprietary information. Um, when I was at a defense industrial-based company, like we had a lot of plans for stuff that I as the CISO did not want to see. I, I don't need to know what that assembly is. I really do not care. And it's a risk if I know what it is. So don't show me that, even though I'm the CISO, the person in charge, right? Uh, I think we need to additionally, beyond those roles, we have to have things like strong encryption. And that's encryption of those data, both when they're in transit as well as at rest. And if possible, when in use, we're starting to see some actual practical implementations of that, at least in financial services. But then we also have to have things like step up authentication. Like if I am accessing those data from my normal workstation at a normal time of the day, I don't need to be double authenticated. But if I'm suddenly connecting through, I don't know, Germany, and it's on an Android phone that's never been seen before. I think I need to get additional authentication beyond that. And then from a strategy perspective, companies, there's a lot of DLP vendors in the space. I think ultimately pick one that covers the majority of the types of data that you're using and, and the type of applications that you use. And then if you've got any bespoke or custom applications, anything that's really um, unique, go search the marketplace for things that can cover that. Again, thinking from a manufacturing perspective, like Office documents, Google documents, those sorts of things, emails, Slack messages, chats, teams, those are all very easy to set up classification rules that are going to work across your, your desktop web browser, across an app, across a desktop computer, a mobile phone, doesn't matter. When you get into those more edge case ones like electrical diagrams or circuit diagrams or um, manufacturing assembly plans, like that's where you actually have to go look and find where else can we have, uh, what other vendors actually cover this weird janky file type um, so that we can protect that. And then the final thing is like, don't do a big bang approach. It's tempting, but it also tends to result in uh, big bangs, which um, generally upsetting in, in, in practice. I think having it slowly rolled out is important. I can think of a case where um, we were putting DLP in at a company where it was very common for people, it turned out, to have business processes to send credit card messages, or credit cards in Teams messages. And the only way we found that out was by just dropping it in, wow. in a monitor-only mode. And it's a valid use case. The EA, the executive assistant for the director, or the VP in that case, was like going to buy lunch for the team. And it turns out that was just there was normally getting the director's credit card in the team's message to say, yeah, this is approved, use my card. I think that you have to set a sensitivity filter for like maybe one disclosure of this in this venue, that's fine. But if you're sending 10 or if you're sending 100, we need to have a sensitivity layer there that says, okay, maybe we need to block this. Maybe we need to give this employee some additional micro training at the time that they've done it so they understand why it's being blocked. Or maybe we need to pop a flare to the security team and say, hey, look, we've got evidence of mass data exfiltration here. Going to be a bad time. Go check this out. Excellent. Excellent. So as part of the DLP, that, that's something I've been trying to figure out for years and I still have yet to figure it out. So as when a DLP policy triggers, how do we get micro-training to that end user right there on the spot? Not just warn them, get them in trouble, because that doesn't do any good, right? right. If you threaten your employee base, you, you get nowhere quick. That's where you get shadow IT. You find everybody finds ways around everything. They're trying to hide things. I always try to make sure that we have a very public approach to things. You know, a, a, I, would rather, I would rather incentivize an end user to tell me that there's a problem or if, oops, we sent that and DLP flagged it up. Okay, let's train that real quick. Let's notify the security team. Let's make sure that we don't do this again, but not in a, in a negative manner, right? Because we, we can't do that. So as part of that, I've been trying to figure out for years, how do we do that with DLP and trigger policies to micro-training? I, I still haven't figured that out. Have you found anything decent along those lines, McCain? Have you been successful in that area? Um, yeah, but it's very product-dependent. And I don't want to endorse a specific product or solution here, but I'd say that that becomes a, a, an evaluation criteria to determine if it flags something. Is there the ability to deliver micro training to an employee to allow them to know, hey, you violated the policy. Do you want to continue on with this? Because maybe it is a valid 
legitimate business purpose, or should we actually block it and let them know, please don't do that again? But okay. I think that that's the other thing that has to really happen there is good communication with the management team so that managers can understand, like, here are the, here are the employees that are regularly violating this policy, that are regular out of compliance with this policy where they're getting flagged a lot. And then before you go drop the ban hammer on them, go find out what they're doing. Because often what implementation will miss is the concept of a valid business process that just, you know, somebody janked it together. It made sense at the time. And now it's the backbone that your company happens to run on. And you go, wow, that's no, no, no way legals looked at that. No way securities looked at that. Because there's a lot of this stuff that happens and it's not just shadow IT. Sometimes it's completely baked in vendor processes. But if we don't take that slow approach to DLP, you never get there. It gets thrown out because it's as soon as it blocks something that takes down a deal or results in a supplier leaving or a vendor leaving, you're going to get your DLP solution dropped. It's, it's amazing how fast that happens. Yeah. And that goes back to, to your point there. That goes actually goes back to user access reviews, right? So as part of that implementation, what does the user actually do? What do they actually need access to? What do they not need access to? And then when it comes to sensitive things, now, now we got to start pimming them in, right? So mm-hmm. one-time access to that data, right? And so that that's kind of goes back to the user access reviews. I always lean back on NYDFS hardcore because I, much as I hate NYDFS, I love NYDFS, right? Because it's got some very, very direct bullet point strict you, thou shalt's and thou shalt nots, right? It's very, mm-hmm. and I love that because I can actually implement that in a generic way, much like the, much like the NIST CSF in a way that applies to many, many different organizations, right? I can, I can adopt it and change it and, you know, monetize it a little bit differently. That's not hard to do. But using that user access review goes back to 80% of our problems right there, in my opinion. That's not unfair. I I, I think that's a a reasonable way of looking at it. If people don't have access to things that they don't need to have access to, you're going to have less uh, negative outcomes. Yeah. And it also goes back to like the GDPR principle. And you mentioned it earlier, Kate. If you don't need that access, oh my God, why on earth do you have that data, right? You are begging to be breached. I worked at an organization as a CISO, and it drove me insane. I lost a lot of nights sleep, and I won't mention who they are, but I lost a lot of nights sleep because they never deleted anything. And the mm. developers had direct access to the product and product data, GDPR data in the cloud in the United States. I'm like, wait, 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 wait hold on. Everything's wrong here, guys. Hold on. Let, let's go back. Why do we need this? What do we need? Let's get rid of what we don't need. Went to the CEO. We had a long discussion. At that point, he made the decision that if it's six months old, we haven't touched it needed it other than regulatory data get rid of it so mm-hmm. like uh, your irs data you got to keep that for you know 99 years and in some cases seven years whatever so with all that data we kept but anything else we just dumped it but it finally got to the point where we we're just dumping it. that was one of the greatest days of my life because i actually felt effective as a, as a CISO in that respect and got the company to understand basic principles of business this isn't about security security like you said kane is not tech techno Techno's easy, right? It, it does what you tell it to. You flip the bits and it's simple, right? Technology's easy. People are the difficult part, right? So explaining that down into the human firewall and explaining this down to humans, why you do this and why you need to do this and getting it through the thick heads of some of your developers sometimes or some of your thick heads of some of your security guys sometimes is difficult, but it's essential. Yeah, and I think also that really speaks to the role of the modern CISO and chief compliance officer where we have to be really good friends with legal. And I say that because if you're not talking to your legal and also to your chief financial officer, having an effective data retention schedule or data disposition schedule, depending on what you like to name that document, um, that becomes a real impediment to progress. And if you think about something that's, uh, if you're dealing with post-breach litigation, right? Which is something I do not recommend anyone does. It is just as fun as it sounds. Um, the, one of the questions that's going to come up from discovery is, okay, so you've put in a legal hold, right? So what can we get our claws into under discovery? And remember that like facts are always going to be discoverable. Opinions are not necessarily going to be discoverable. But If you have been operating your data disposition schedule in a regular, consistent manner, and you can show that, you have proof, you have evidence that this is the control, this is how it's operated, this is how we take stuff out and bin it, or whatever you do to get rid of those data, right? Provided you've got that that record, it results in a much narrower scope of discovery than if you've been doing it kind of loosey-goosey for when you delete stuff, because if that comes up in discovery, you're going to have a bad time because they'll ask, well, did you delete anything that did not necessarily, um, you know, that could have been an opinion, could have been a fact associated with this 
event or breach that we're dealing with. Um, and I, I'd encourage really that um, as CISOs are thinking of things they should be doing at the end of the year, like go have a, first of all, if you haven't had coffee with legal, go have coffee with them uh, or go out for drinks, like be friends with them. They are not scary people. The last time you want to meet your chief counsel is when you're dealing with a breach because you're going to be thinking, well, it's time to update my LinkedIn. I guess I'm being put out <laughs> to pasture, right? But also go through your incident response plan and make sure that there's clear demarcation of when does legal get involved. And I personally like to see that as early as possible in there. And if we're going to follow a two-track system associated with preparation for external litigation or pending litigation, make sure that that's also called out as we've now got two breach reports coming out. One is going to be under ACP, attorney-client privilege. The other one's going to be a normal business operation that we're going to actually go use to fix it. That one is all the facts. That one has like prevention of additional discovery by having that legal hold in. And the other report that's being produced exclusively for legal, that doesn't go to anybody. Like maybe the CEO gets a complimentary copy, but that's about it. Like that, that data does not transit throughout the rest of the corporation. Yeah, I like that you touched on that because I've always worked with legal hand in hand. You know, as, as a CISO, my job is to implement policy, right? It's to help create policy, help to help them to understand their risk, their business risk, not their security risk, their business risk, right? Understand that, put that in writing, and then work with legal. What can we actually defend, right? Because that's really where it, what it boils down to is what can you defend? And legal, I always allow legal to take the lead, and I always follow their lead. Because the reality is, no matter what I say or do, or what my staff says or does, legal's got to defend us, plain and simple. It, they've got to defend us, right? And now that we are getting into the age of where board members and CISOs could start starting to look like we're going to be criminally charged, this is even more important to make sure that you work with your legal team to make sure that we are definitely following the board's direction. We're following legal directions. We're not missing some stuff. It's critical, in my opinion. So it's something I've always done. My last legal, chief legal officer, he and I got along great. We went out, like you said, okay, we went out and had beers. It was great. You know, beers and lies of the lawyer is quite an interesting evening. Trust me. What has been your experience with working with legal, Chris? What's, what's your stance on that? Oh, I, I 100% agree. Yeah, bring bring them in very, very early uh, into any um, uh, suspect event, right? Um, at that at, at that point, we don't even know whether or not it's 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 a breach or an incident or, yeah. or to to what scale, right? Let them let them know early. Uh, get their their direction on uh, what should be communicated when and how and and uh, who what what type of uh, parties should be pulled into that that communication um, and. Uh, what documentation that we need to be cap- capturing throughout the entire event from start to start to finish that you know potentially could be utilized um, later down the road. So I 100% agree. Bring them in extremely early. Yep. Now I try to develop the IRP, the IRP with the legal right there with us. I mean, I was 100%. trying to make a stakeholder in that because that's critical yep. in my opinion. You know, and, and I'm dumber to box of rocks to take it for what it's worth, guys. You know, that's just my opinion. So. <laughs> But also just on, on friendships at a corporate level, I think at the front end, um, some of the best conversations I've had is with chief financial officers around control design, not control effectiveness. I'm going to separate those two out for just a second here. So control effectiveness is, are you doing the thing? Control design is, does the thing make sense? And I say that I like to partner as a CISO with CFOs because they've been dealing with Sarbanes-Oxley for over 20 years, right? And Sarbanes-Oxley's got that interesting clause where you can get sent to club fed, which is not a good time for anybody. So they've been really nuanced in thinking, how do I make this control both operable but also effective? And I'd rather go talk to my internal CFO than pay a consultancy to go figure out if my control design makes sense because ultimately... They don't know the culture of the corporation as well as the CFO would. So again, if we're, if we're putting together our holiday party shopping list of people to go make friends with, like legal and CFO should be on your punch list. Yeah. Well, CFO also because they control the money, right? So you and I can develop any plans, you know, business, business plans that work great. We can secure the company, you know, but if we can't afford it, you know, it, it's worthless. We've wasted everyone's time, right? And and so keeping the CFO involved is, is critical because you literally need to understand the budget and what their perspective is because they've got different perspectives than you and I have. Even as CISOs, and we're business guys, right? My opinion, security is never a technology issue. It is a business issue, right? And so working with these guys, understanding the budget, understanding what they need, understanding what they're thinking is always critical because they, they've got regular they got regulations that they know every day that you and I don't think about, so... I agree. I agree. So what what kind of data minimization strategies, you know, can we implement, you know, to only collect just what we need? Because this has always been a struggle, right? Everybody collects too much data, in my opinion. Most companies do collect it. And it goes back down to design. 
What do you need to, and where do you need it? How long do you keep it? What are some of the strategies you've, you've seen successful gain? You know, this is going to feel initially like a consultant answer because I've, I've done that before. And it kind of starts off with a gap analysis. I know that's a terrible thing to say. See also consulting background. Um, but you should really evaluate your current data collection processes because everybody starts somewhere. Yeah. And then really create um, I'm gonna just, a, a data map um, that outlines like, what are you collecting it? What are you, how, where is it being stored? And where is it being accessed from? And I think of that, especially with like uh, GDPR and similar regulatory controls that require us to know these things. But also, what's the business purpose for each of those data types that you're actually storing? Because that's going to give us a, a good foundation for really implementing our minimization controls. The next thing, and we've kind of talked about this as well around a disposition or uh, a retention schedule, we need to come up with the concept of a data lifecycle, right? Uh, you should have a clear retention period for each of your different data sets. And often that's result that that's tied to the labels that are associated with that. But you should say like, how long should we have this? And when should it be safely deleted? Assuming it's not subject to a legal hold, right? If it's no longer fit for purpose or if it's now past its expiry date. And then finally, like what is the essential data that we're, we're going to need there? So what's, um, What's critical that you collect for your operations? What's critical you should collect for your customer service? And if you don't have a justifiable business need for actually collecting it, don't. Or if you accidentally, as an incidental, you collect it, get rid of it immediately so we're not getting extraneous information. And then finally, and I, I recognize we already covered this one, like we need to figure out who needs access to that, right? And it's going to be based on your job role or it's going to be based on your business necessity. And that isn't just for first-party access. That's also for third-party access. If you've got a marketing firm that is dealing with your data, right? And doing some kind of marketing operations with it, what do they actually need access to? Do we need to send them like full, you know, access to our data lake so that they can just go trawl through? How's that going to look if it comes up in court? How's that going to look if a regulator finds out, right? Especially if it's overseas. So we need to really look at what do our employees need? What do our consultants need? What do our data processors need? And based on that, we can actually put in an, an effective set of controls and then audit that. Like, make sure that we're actually doing what we think we're doing. Like, how do we automatically collect evidence, collect proof that it's working as designed so that if you deal with litigation or if you deal with your insurance company post-breach, that you can show, yeah, we have these controls, we designed these controls, they were reasonable, and they're actually working at the time. Because if you do that, ultimately you can get a lot of favor with the court or with your insurance company if you can prove to them you are doing everything like you are doing a reasonable thing because breaches are going to happen and that's not a fatalistic viewpoint i kind of look at like that, like tornadoes right you can build a great manufacturing facility in a place that has tornadoes and you can have yourself all the building design all of the you know st staff shelters for people who have to deal like if your building's about to get hit with a tornado Tornado's still going to happen, right? It's not like you're preventing it. I think we're going to have data breaches that happen in the same way where we do everything reasonable. And then after the fact, all the investigators, whether it's tornadoes folks, the insurance company, the local law enforcement going and looking at it, right? Or whether it's an insurance or a um, you know plaintiff looking at it, the same kind comes back. Did you operate your controls reasonably? How prepared you are matters. Yeah. Absolutely. And then proving that. Absolutely. Awesome. So what privacy training is required for software developers and your NIT professionals, in your opinion, Chris? Um, yeah. So the biggest thing for me still is that data classification piece. Um, uh, folks understanding and, and both the, the business creating those, those policies around the data classification and being a, um, having our, our staff uh, trained in understanding as to where, where those data is, the, that data resides so that we can create uh, technology and policies around that data classification. Um, so both, both from a retention perspective, as well as from a security perspective and looking at it and, and classifying every, every single one of those in, in uh, a slightly different way based on the data classification records. So. What about you, Kane? What privacy training you know, is required for software developers and IT professionals do you think we should be considering? In addition to what Chris has laid in there, I think we should also have secure coding practices Right, like training on how to actually write secure code, and that can focus on common things like SQL injection as well as cross-site scripting. But also, I think it's how do you test for that? 
Because it's one thing to say, yeah, we're, we're doing secure coding practices. Are you actually evaluating that? Like, what do you have for static code analysis? What do you have for dynamic code analysis? And finally, what do you have for configuration management to make sure that you did not just, you know, stand up the new service and then misconfigure it so that it's still not secure? Um, and the other thing I think that, that we have to at least have a level of awareness for IT professionals as well as developers to understand the, the broad context that we work in of GDPR, CCPA, or HIPAA, right? How, whichever one is going to be applicable to your organization, if you're developing software, at least knowing that it exists in the world will affect decisions like, where are we going to store these data? Do these need to be encrypted? Do we need to obfuscate these? or Do we need to tokenize these data? Or can we just, you know, bin them as they are? I think that if we don't teach our developers that we're doing them a disservice and ultimately we're creating a, a risk there of storing something improperly or accessing something improperly that's going to result in a negative consequence. So one more question. Then. So what contractual, so now we're talking about third party, fourth party, because I'm big on fourth party right now because third party, we've pretty well got a good hold on. Not great, but we've got a good grasp on third party. At least everybody understands what third party is these days. So I'm big on fourth party. So what contractual obligations should vendors except regarding data, data privacy. Okay, what do you think? Boy, um, I'm, I'm thinking of so many security questionnaires that I've seen over the years that try to um, shift risk ultimately to the vendor or shift risk to the supplier. Um, I think that's probably not the, the best look. Um, I think that we really need to look at do you have a data processing agreement with them, right, that outlines the responsibilities for the vendor and the client to ensure that they're being compliant with the regulatory uh, privacy laws in the United States or in other jurisdictions? I'm thinking of like the EU, for example. Um, and then also, I think there's a few specific state laws, um, Connecticut, I know California's got one, and I think Virginia and Colorado have got them too, that have got additional provisions that are required in contracts. So for example, I, I know CCPA, um, there has to actually be a contractual language that prevents data transfers from being deemed as a sale or as uh, I think the other term they use is sharing, but it also yeah. has to identify specific business purposes for those data disclosure. And then if we walk over to the GDPR, right, the contract has to be fairly specific, like it has to have subject matter, duration, nature, and the purpose of the data processing. It also has to outline, like, what are the types of the personal data that are involved, how you're categorizing your data subjects, and then the obligations and rights of you as the data controller. And then finally, I think there have to be some notification obligations that are going to be built into our contracts that require the vendor to notify the company, if you're purchasing, for example, in case there's a data breach or unauthorized access. But I also think vendors have to be careful here in taking on independent notification responsibilities unless that's specifically required by law. Because sometimes like, we don't want to be sending our purchasers like one person accessed one record accidentally, right? I think there needs to be a scalability thing there. And also, if there is a legal requirement for notification, we absolutely have to respect that. So, no, so sort of, go ahead, go ahead, Chris, jump. I was, I was going to say, I got a couple of things that just popped into my head as you were uh, discussing there. Uh, specifically, um, AA, as we're going in and looking at the initial vendor contracts, the data ownership. Do, do, do we as our organization own that own that data or does the third party actually own the data? And in some cases, it's the third party. And sometimes those third parties also have the ability to share that data with other third parties, depending on how it's used. Especially uh, now we're finding more and more uh, times that those th third parties, as they're utilizing different AI type technologies, that AI is utilizing that, that data for potentially even your competitors in the exact same, the exact same space. So being very, very careful as to and understanding you know, how, that, how that data is both utilized with potentially other third and fourth parties, as well as understanding who actually owns that data. And in the, in the event of uh, a vendor is disengaged from your organization, who owns that data? Do you have the ability to actually get that data back to your organization in the event of that, that line be cut? That kind of goes back to our GDPR, kind of takes the same approach of who actually owns that data. You got to define that. And who can make decisions on that data? For example, your personal data under GPR belongs to the individual. It does not belong to the company. Right. So it, it, really, it can be really tricky there. So on that subject, Chris, let's ask you this. Yeah. What options do uh, users have to revoke consent or request data deletion uh, under U.S.? Now, there is no U.S. privacy law. I was just going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're kind of missing that one. U.S. privacy well, and, and, 
and that's part of the problem, right? Because the, right. the reality is that every every state kind of has its own, its own yep. rule, rules and regulations, right? And especially if you're an organization that is uh, performing business in every single one of those states, literally your your legal team and your compliance team has to be uh, uh, understand the rules and the regulations for each in the individual organization. There, what what I would really like to see is similar to what what CCA uh, CCPA did is actually take that and actually make that as a as a national sta- standard. So that we are subject to one standard and not, you know, 50 different standards. I, I think, like, frankly, that would be fantastic. I mean, although when CCPA was initially released, we're like, oh, crap. I mean, that, this, this is this is to the ninth uh, scale. I mean, it's fairly de- detailed compared to what a lot of our other re- regulations, um, you know, say PCI or, or uh, 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 whatever the, those other organizations or other um, uh, standards uh, that we're trying to, you know, um, say, are, are really or PII. You know, a true definition of PII is so vague. Really, I mean, it's it's and, and it's vague for a purpose. But what uh, what what CCPA is that actually is, is trying to create some additional uh, granularity and some definitions around that. What what what's really not nice there is as well is that uh, it it well it's 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 frustrating in the same same term. Um, uh, a, a person owns owns the data can you know make make a subject for request. For data data deletion with any organization, right? Implementation of that though is is very difficult, and I'd love to uh, hear Kane's uh, uh, responses. That as as this is very new to organizations, and where we're depending on the, the organization and, and the, the subject for compliance of of that. Um, what, how do you see organizations tackling the approach for data deletion or data obfuscation uh, for those types of requests? You know, I think the most successful companies in this space here, and I'm going to co-mingle my answer. Part of this will be as a, as a private citizen. Um, so I think the companies ultimately that are transparent about the data that they're collecting and how they're using that and making it not buried in a 17-page privacy policy that ain't nobody going to read or a click-through EULA, which nobody's going to read. Um, I think that's part of it, like being transparent about why are we collecting these, but also having a well-defined and legally compliant procedure for how people can request changes or deletion of their data. And that also has to be accessible and it has to have specific requirements. Like if you really want to engender trust with your, with your customers, having a process to confirm receipt of a deletion request within, I don't know, like a week or 10 business days or responding within 45 calendar days as required by the CCPA, for example, I think that really is necessary. And then speaking as a, a private individual, not as you know, representing a company here, I regularly go delete all of my personal data off of things. And I will say there are some companies out there that do a really good job of communicating. Here's how you can get your data deleted from this. I'm especially thinking of like data brokers, which uh, I have no love for, Um, but also individual companies where you once had a commercial relationship with them, you no longer need the account. How do you delete your stuff? Right. If you've got that well-defined, it's going to make it easier for your customer support team because they won't be dealing with me, asking them how to do that, um, or other people who really do care about that. I think California has made some progress now with their um, data broker laws, but without a national standard, again, it becomes very patchwork for companies to actually yeah. respond to these and, and plan for them effectively at scale. It, it's brutal because honestly... You know, I, I try to I try to tell everybody use NYDFS when it comes to financial. If you're doing any financial transaction, I don't care what it is, try to follow NYDFS because it is very restrictive. It, it's very it's very it's very directed. It's very thou shalt thou shalt not. And if you're going to deal with data privacy, you know, or any any personal data, try to follow GDPR the best you can. Even though if, even if you don't have a European audience, it doesn't matter because if you can get to these levels in your organization you're going to be in a much better position from a business risk, right? You don't have the data, you can't get breached, right? If you encrypt the data, who cares if it gets released, right? I've got a healthcare IT background, healthcare CISO background. I don't care if I get breached because I'm already breached in my opinion. But everything that's important is encrypted. And if it's encrypted, CMS and OCR have all agreed, if, you're, if your encrypted data leaves your organization, it's not a breach because it's encrypted. As long as you don't give them the key to it, you know what I mean? So yeah. keep in mind, right? Don't put the key in the same drive, you know? Get rid of it somewhere else, you know? Encrypt your key somewhere else, you know? It's not difficult. So that's just, just my nickel. So um, a couple of a couple other questions I want to ask. How do we reduce vulnerabilities when company data is used on mobile devices, Kane? What's your take on mobile device? MDM, MAM, you know, there's a lot of different terms for it out there. 
a lot of people, you know, are, since COVID hit, you know, we're working from home. I'm working on my MacBook right now, as a matter of fact. I own this MacBook, not the company. So what's your take on, on, on MDM or, or mobile device management with privacy? How, how do we approach that? How do businesses approach that problem? Um, I think that really it, it comes down to, is it an employee device or is it a corporate-owned device? Um, and then beyond that, where is your line of demarcation and what controls can you effectively put in? So uh, the, at the very simplest factor, let's say that I have Office, let's say I've got Office on my phone, and let's say that it has some proprietary data on there, right? So yep. at a very high level, if my device is lost or I think it's lost or I think it's breached, it would be nice if the IT department could just like delete all that stuff but not my photos that are in my gallery, not my music that I've downloaded. That's the kind of controls we were putting in place about 10 years ago. So that's like that's below table stakes for me at this point. Um, I think the more nuanced approach is how is the data being used effectively on that device? Because what we don't want to create is a situation where it's possible for a sales rep, and I'm going to pick on sales reps because this is a thing that they do, right? You've got a book of business. You know you're going to be leaving a company. So you get on yep. your phone and you download all your contacts out of the corporate address book and you put them, or out of Salesforce, and you put them into your own address book, right? And it's it's a human behavior, right? You think you've got a relationship with these people. It's a commercial relationship. Never mind the fact that that's proprietary data. It's probably PII as well, and it's probably sensitive. If you don't have the controls across desktop, across cloud, across mobile devices to detect that at a floor and be able to prevent that when it's not appropriate, I think that you're doing you're, you're setting yourself up for um, all kinds of business risk associated with that. Um, and that becomes like, Again, I'm using a salesperson's book of business, but that could just be manufacturing plans. That could be a marketing plan. That could be a, a sales plan. Like all of those things, if we're doing it effectively at a mobile device level, and that again becomes vendor specific. So does the vendor actually have this capability for the systems that you know that you're using, right? Um, and is it overly intrusive or annoying for the end user? Because otherwise people just find a way to work around it if they don't understand like how this is helping protect them as an employee, as opposed to how it's helping to mitigate risks to the business. I took three extra steps, so I'm not going to do it because it takes time and I got to make phone calls. Yep. Oh, I understand. Yep. I agree. Chris, what are your thoughts on it? What are, what are your thoughts on mobile devices and, and, and privacy? How do you protect that? What are your thoughts on on current technologies, yeah, I mean, I think Kane really hit hit on the majority of the uh, the points there. Uh, obviously, compartmentalizing the the data, um, I, I absolutely would not uh, recommend anybody to uh, allow or, or permit the uh, you know, it, let's say on your your iPhone or Android device, you know, merging uh, both cor corporate emails as, as well as uh, personal emails into the same uh, compartment, right? So very much compartmentalizing the the data. Um, again, knowing you know how the the data is utilized and and having tracking mechanisms as well as you know remote remote wipe technology is obviously uh, critical. Um, you know, utilizing uh, uh, you know DLP uh, solutions all the way down to the, the mobile device. I mean, we're kind of talking about it earlier as we're uh, in any type of uh, data as, as to whether or not it's you know being moved uh, to you know personal machines, US, USBs, mobile devices. Et cetera, et cetera. You need to be able to tr track and you know authenticate uh, that data back to some sort of you know DLP type, type solution, uh, so that we can cut access to the data, even if you technically have the file to that data. Right? Um, just because you have the file doesn't mean that you should be able to open it. You yeah, right. Where the I was other, thing I, other thing I'd say though that has to be tied back to a business risk, because otherwise you're never going to get funding for that project. So that was kind of on the technical implementation bits. You have to make a business case for why do you need to prevent this? What is the business risk that is in the corporate risk register that says we're mitigating against, and also periodically make sure that that makes sense. Um, I can think of a good friend of mine, a, a CISO, like they had a control that said they, they had a risk of data disclosure, right, of information from their network environment, and then COVID hit, and they decided to put in a work from home uh, policy where they said, okay, you don't need to be in the office anymore. His enterprise firewall renewal came up this year, and he looked at the business risk register that said, we are guarding against the risk of uh, data exfiltration. Well, his offices are like Wi-Fi access points, and that's the only thing in the building, and periodically like the custodians, uh, because they're trying to get rid of their their um, office space at this point and said, okay, so our risk is the same, but our data have moved. So let's update our corporate risk register first and foremost. And then we can look at what are the controls that we actually can apply because we've got a business level agreement that 
we don't need to spend $50 million to renew our enterprise firewalls. Instead, we can take some of that money, put it into some you know, endpoint DLP solutions that are going to be more appropriate for the threat that we're dealing with and pass the rest back as corporate savings. If you do that as a CISO, if you make that business case of what is this risk that we're mitigating, you're going to have better board level engagement, especially if you find $50 million under the proverbial couch cushions, right? Like that is a rare moment for a CISO to be able to do that, but it, you have to have it be framed as a business risk, not a technical risk. Nobody cares about technical risks. Nope, I agree. goes back to, we're, we're, we, we do business. We don't do technology. We do business. Plain and simple as so. Okay, guys. I know we're, we're wrapping up here. We are getting close to our time. Kane, any, any parting thoughts uh, for our audience? Anything that you would think that our audience would gain from today's conversation or something they should think about moving forward when it comes to privacy? Um, I think that Privacy and security are continuing to merge and to meld. And I think that we really, um, as corporate leaders, we have to look at our the controls that we are operating actually effective and can we defensively show whether it's for a breach or whether it's for our insurance reapplication do we have the confidence that the solutions that we're rolling right now that are in use actually work and that in our macroeconomic climate as well where budgets are not going to be the same as they were this year they might be going down for some folks and we might end up having some painful renewal questions do you have the confidence that as a CISO or as a chief privacy officer or as chief compliance officer, your controls actually are working? Like, can you show that? Do you have the data to show that? And if you don't have that ability to show your compliance operations holistically, I think that it becomes the next layer of defensibility for most corporations. Um, moving forward, I expect that companies are going to see more litigation, unfortunately. I don't like to say that, but um, that's the reality. We're going to see more attestations and more certification requirements. So building the plumbing now to collect all of those proof that uh, control is operating effectively, and then also building that diligence to evaluate it regularly. So when a board member asks us, when an insurance investigator asks us, we always know we're working from a fact-based approach rather than an opinion-based approach, which has not worked for the past 20 years and is not going to work any any further. I worked at a, uh, I can't say who, but I worked with an energy, right, energy company in Texas. And we I, I led their cybersecurity and in, 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 cybersecurity efforts. And one of the things that I always did, and to, to Kane's point, was I created a red. We called it the red book because it was just a three note binder that was red. We literally printed out everything ERCOT, everything NYDFS, everything we had to we had to meet. We literally line by lined it along with the artifacts and pointed where the artifacts were stored at consistently. And then we went through that every month, and it was a pain in the butt. It really was, but. But here's where it pays off to, Kate, to Kane's point. We got ERCOT walked in and one of the New York, New York walked in and we handed them our red book and said, here you go. What we effectively did was we proved, we did what we said we we're going to do. So we were proving it. We also put them in a really tight, small box. As auditors come in, they go, oops. And then they start looking over here and going, so we put them in a box. It was, it was awesome. So to, to Kane's point, building the plumbing, getting the foundation correct, and then tracking that every single month or every quarter, whatever makes sense for the organization. For us, it made sense monthly, which was a pain, but it, it made sense. And then we were able to keep all that documentation at one shot and literally put it in an audit or a box. We pass an audit with a 97% score in three weeks at ERCOT. That never happens, ever. Mm -hmm. That was amazed just because we had that red book. So excellent advice, Ken. Excellent advice. Chris, what, would you, what, what are your parting thoughts for privacy for an organization, how they can keep their privacy private? You know, what's important? Well, I, I still think everything goes down to, in my, my opinion, everything goes down to a personnel. That's still where, where weakest link is. So it's create, creating uh, pol policies and communicating those policies, as well as not just sharing the documents, but also creating training around those policies so that folks know not just what to do and what not, what not to do, but also the whys behind yeah. the things so that they're actually thinking from a, from a privacy pers perspective. Um, as well as being open uh, to change. As uh, the organization continues to change and, and develop over a year-to-year -year basis, 
that you're constantly looking at those and communicating the, the modifications uh, to those policies and, and practices and procedures, um, you know, different st- standards uh, that the organization should be uh, practicing on a year-to-year basis. So. Yep, I agree. Yeah, sales guys are notorious for getting around. That's why I try to make friends with the sales guys because I learn all the ways to get around things, you know, because they're the ones who are going to do it because they just want to make a buck, you know. Somebody yep. throws a, a dollar down, you know, d- down the hallway on, on the fishing lure. They're going to be going, they're going to be chasing that, right? So I want to find out where that lure is going and how they're getting to that lure. So awesome. All right, guys, I really appreciate your time. Kane, I really hope you'll come back and join us again. Uh, Chris, same thing with you, Matt. I appreciate your time, last minute notice. I, I appreciate that and I hope you'll come back again with us. And folks, thank you very much. If you have any questions, follow up with, with us and we will definitely get those answered. Again, Kane, thank you, Matt. I really appreciate your time. Chris, I appreciate it. Thank you very much, folks. Thank you. Guys. Thank you.